Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Now live on your channel, live reading. Alrighty, three days in a row. What is the world coming to? A king-pilled stream, three days in a row. And none of these streams have been half an hour late. <laughs> All right, I'm going to give you guys a little bit to make your way in here. And um, let me make sure that it's streaming properly. Looks like it's good to go on YouTube. Let me check this uh, this Twitter stream. There, look at that, my face looking back at me. All right. You know, one thing I was thinking about today is is this King Pilled logo. Shout out Dolly uh, AI image generator. This King Pilled logo is pretty cool. It would kind of look it would, it would it look pretty cool on some merch. I was imagining like a, a t-shirt with this logo on the front of it. Could do it with the King Pilled um, name across the top or without. Be, do something a little subtler. Uh, what do you guys think? Would you guys would you guys be interested in King Pilled merch? Would you buy a, a King Pilled logo t-shirt or long sleeve shirt or something like that? I might work on something along those lines. Um, let's see. So, um, obviously the, the purpose of this stream is, is doing the, the third part of reading through Father Seraphim Rose's nihilism. Fantastic book. Been getting a great response from this. A lot of people seem to really be digging this, uh, the insights here in this format, um, which is cool because I enjoy doing this. It's, uh, frankly, it's, it's easy content because I don't have to sit here and come up with all the thoughts myself. I can just default to um, or, or defer to a, I was going to say a literal saint, technically not, but you know, yeah, a, uh, a very valued um, mind within the Orthodox church. Uh, so I know I've been saying that uh, the next book that we're going to do after this one is God creation and early man, but I have had a, request to instead do orthodoxy and the religion of the future because um that one segues well with this one i haven't read that one um i've read a uh um before i started doing this i'd read a pretty decent amount of of this book um, which is why i wanted to do it um but i have not read orthodoxy and the religion of the future but i've it's obviously on my list it's very highly recommended so um that's the next one that we're going to read as soon as we finish this one. I think this one here is going to be another, uh, we're at about, let's see, it's on the PDF here. We're at page 25 of 48. The first few pages of that weren't, um, weren't actual text. So, um, we're at probably halfway through. So I'd say maybe two more episodes on this one. Um, and then we'll get started on, on, uh, Orthodox and the religion of the future. Then we'll do, uh, Genesis creation and early man. Uh, again, all of these are, are books uh, by Father Seraphim Rose. So um, before I get into it, though, I wanted to share this other video that I am in the middle of right now. Um, 
it's a, it's like it's technically a podcast, but it's it's uh, released in video format um, by a thinker that I actually um, I was trying to think of when I first started listening to him, and it was it's been um, it's been a lot longer than I realized. Um, so the guy's name is the Distributist. You guys may or may not be familiar with him. Um, he started doing this show here, the the Fiddler's Green podcast. Um, he's really one of my favorite thinkers. He's a he's a very um, uh, insightful guy, um, very perspicacious. Um, and I first encountered him because he did a uh, he he used to be a very active um, YouTube channel uh, several years ago, uh, and he's kind of adjacent to the um, the YouTube culture that uh, was really. Um, was really roaring in the mid to late teens. Um, so he's kind of adjacent to like the, the bread tubers and, um, you know, Vosh and, and like that whole kind of crew. He's not, not ideologically part of them. He was part of the, the right wing or, or, or conservative response to them. And he made a really fascinating video on Minch's mold bug, which is one of the first, it might've been the first mold bug thing that I ever watched. I just searched mold bug on YouTube and his video uh, was one of the first ones that came up. It was very, uh, uh, very well done uh, breakdown of Moldbug's ideas, and so I started following them. I followed him on on Telegram for a long time. Followed him on Twitter, and uh, but I haven't really listened closely to him um, recently. And I saw this video came up yesterday um, with obviously James Lindsay being referenced, and James Lindsay is someone who's who's uh, particularly been on my radar recently because of a lot of the comments he's making. Um, and I don't want to, this is, this is kind of the idea of this, of doing a, a live reading book like this is that it's supposed to sort of be uh, evergreen content. So I don't want to get things bogged too down, bogged down too much in, um, in this sort of uh, kind of, a, it, this is news now, but it's not going to be in a long time. Um, but this video in particular, he's talking about a lot more than just, um, the the state of the um it's sort of the intellectual dark web intellectual dark web adjacent type of people um the kind of brain trust of milk toast classical liberal type people who are um they've they've kind of stepped into the role of being the modern quote unquote conservative commentariat um that is still they think that they're acceptable within the mainstream, but the mainstream doesn't give a toss about them um, and just considers them Nazis, even though they spend all of their time doing everything they can to distance themselves from the Nazis. Um, so he, he has a really interesting analysis on them, their, their psychology and, and, and how they got to be where they're at. Um, and obviously I'm only halfway through the video here, you can see, but um, uh, he's, he's kind of getting into a little bit what what do we have to do with them? What's wrong with these guys' approach, and and how do we have to relate to them uh, moving forward? And what what can they do um, to change their approach, which they're definitely not going to? But um, so Dave here is the distributist. His name's Dave. Um, he's he's a very um, very thoughtful guy. Uh, I've just always really appreciated his pro his approach and his thoughtfulness. Um, he's also a West Coaster guy. Um, spent a lot of time in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'm not, and I'm not doxing him. He talks about all this stuff himself. So, um, there's a little bit of a, a fellow traveler kind of common ground thing there as well. Um, he's also, he's a devout Roman Catholic, um, and, uh, very well read, very, uh, sincere one. So, 
Um, I just wanted to, to point this video out to you guys and invite you to go take a look at it. Um, for those of you who aren't necessarily watching right now, um, the name of the show is, uh, it's the, the channel is The Distributist, and this particular episode is the 35th episode of the Fiddler's Green podcast called M Mainstreaming and the Mind of the Man-Child. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to give him a shout out, and uh, y'all can go over and listen to that yourselves. All right, uh, John Lloyd, what's up, man? He said, can you do this type of content with a book called A Man Is His Faith? It's super short, but as a parallel account to this book, it's like $6 from St. Herman Press. Yeah, I uh, definitely, I think you left a comment uh, to that effect, and um, I've written it down. It's definitely one that uh, I'd be happy to to do this kind of reading with. I It'd be ideal if it was, if there was a, uh, a digital version of it. I haven't looked yet to see. Um, I've got that on my to-do list. I'll see if it's a, if there's a digital version of it that I can read on here, but even if it's a physical copy, I can sit here and, and hold a, an old school book and, and read the physical copy of it. Um, that's not a problem. All right. So let's see, let me, uh, we're going to stop sharing, close this tab, uh, check on the stream. Everything looks good. Grandpa Cooper is here because it's, uh, it's before 6 PM uh, Eastern after that is when, when, uh, grandpa Cooper starts disappearing on us. All right, let me get this other screen share window. All right. And then we're going to use this format. Everything looks like it was saved. All right, hold on. I got a cough. All right. Still trying to kick this, uh, this constant cough. So bear with me guys. Um, all right. So, um, if this is the first one of these you're watching, I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to the first two, um, the first two parts of this book that we've read through so far, uh, because we're continuing on with he, uh, father Seraphim Rose laid out, uh, the four stages of the nihilist dialectic. And we've gone through the first three stages. They were liberalism, realism, and vitalism. And now we're getting to uh, the fourth stage, which is the nihilism of destruction. So as I did yesterday, I'll go back and just kind of finish off the, the last uh, paragraph of the previous chapter, um, and that'll get us rolling into the, the, into the new paragraph. Uh, do me a favor, guys, if you're, if you're watching here, uh, like the stream and, uh, and then share it and send it to someone who you think might enjoy it. Um, and then if you could help me with the, the algorithm, uh, liking helps and then just throw a comment on the on the video. I don't care what you say. You could just make fun of me. Cooper said something um, earlier about uh, about me having a stupid face or something like that. That's perfectly acceptable. Say whatever you want. And um, uh, it just helps. It helps the uh, helps the algorithm know that that uh, this is content worth engaging with. Uh, so that'll put in front of other people. Yes. Thank you. Two bit smash that like button. What's the the, the YouTube uh the, the, the canned YouTube thing now, like, share, subscribe, all that stuff. All right, so let's start reading. Hold on, I got to take a drink. This podcast is powered by raw milk. Realism and its rage for truth destroys the truth. In the same way, vitalism and its very quest for life smells of death. The vitalism of the last hundred years has been an unmistakable symptom of world weariness, and its prophets, 
even more clearly than any of the philosophers of the dead liberalism and realism they attacked, have been a manifestation of the end of Christian Europe. Vitalism is the product, not of the freshness and life and immediacy its followers so desperately seek, precisely because they lack them, but of the corruption and unbelief that are but the last phase of the dying civilization they hate. One need be no partisan of the liberalism and realism against which vitalism reacted to see that it has overreacted, that its antidote to an undeniable disease is itself a more potent injection of the same nihilist germ that caused the disease. Beyond vitalism, there can be only one more definitive stage through which nihilism may pass, the nihilism of destruction. Here at last, we find an almost pure nihilism, a rage against creation and against civilization that will not be appeased until it has reduced them to absolute nothingness. The nihilism of destruction, if no other form of nihilism, is unique to the modern age. There has been destruction on a wide scale before, and there have been men who have gloried in destruction. But never until our own time have there been a doctrine and a plan of destruction. Never before has the mind of man so contorted itself as to find an apology for this most obvious work of Satan and to set up a program for its accomplishment. Even among more restrained nihilist, nihilists, to be sure, there have been strong intimations of the gospel of destruction. The realist Bazarov could state that, quote, there is not a single institution of our society that should not be destroyed. Who wishes to be creative, said Nietzsche, must first destroy and smash accepted values. The manifesto of the futurists, who were perhaps as near to nihilism as to vitalism, glorified war and the destroying arm of the anarchist. The destruction of the old order and the abolition of absolute truth were the admitted aims of most realists and vitalists. In the pure nihilists, however, what to others was prologue becomes an end in itself. Nietzsche proclaimed the basic principle of all nihilism and the special apology of the nihilism of destruction in the phrase, there is no truth, all is permitted. But the extreme consequences of this axiom had already been realized before him. Max Stirner, whom we shall encounter again in the next chapter, declared war upon every standard and every principle, proclaiming his ego against the world and laughing triumphantly over the tomb of humanity, all as yet in theory. Sergei Nechayev translated this theory into practice so perfectly that to this day he seems a creation of myth, if not a demon from the depths of hell itself, leading a life of unprincipled ruthlessness and amorality under the pretext of total expediency in the name of the revolution. He was the inspiration for the character of Pyotr Verkovinsky in The Possessed of Dostoevsky, a novel so brilliant in its characterization of the extreme nihilist mentality the book, in fact, is full of representatives of this mentality, as to be absolutely incredible to anyone who has not, like Dostoevsky himself, known the fascination and temptation of nihilism. Mikhail Bakunin, who fell under the spell of Nechayev for a while, only to discover that the consistent practice of nihilism was quite a different thing from its theoretical exposition, wrote under this spell a revolutionary catechism that provided a chilling apology for Nechayevism while proclaiming, our task is terrible, total, inexorable, and universal destruction. The sentiment is too typical of Bakunin to be explained away by his momentary fascination. He ended his reaction in Germany, written before Nechayev was born, with the famous appeal, let us put our trust in the eternal spirit which destroys and annihilates only because it is the unsearchable and eternally creative source of all life. The passion for destruction is also a creative passion. Here, vitalism 
mingles with the will to destroy. But it is destruction that triumphs in the end. Asked what he would do if the new order of his dreams should come into existence, he frankly replied, then I should at once begin to pull down everything I had made. It was in the spirit of Nechaev and the revolutionary catechism that nihilist assassins, they were called at the time anarchists, but we have adopted the more positive meaning of that word in this book, with their propaganda of the deed, terrorized the ruling classes. And not only the ruling classes in Europe, but especially in Russia throughout the last quarter of the 19th century. It was in the same spirit that Lenin, who greatly admired Nechaev, assumed ruthless power and began Europe's first successful experiment in totally unprincipled politics. The passion for violence divorced from the revolution which rationalized it helped lead Europe into the first of its nihilist wars in 1914. And at the same time, in another realm, announced in Dadaist art, let everything be swept away. No more of anything, nothing, nothing, nothing. It remained, however, for Hitler to reveal with absolute explicitness the nature and ends of a pure revolution of nihilism, a, a revolution committed to the equally nihilist alternatives of Weltmacht oder Niedergang, world conquest, or total ruin. A revolution whose leader could exult even before he had come to power, even as Stirner would have exulted, that we may be destroyed, but if we are, we shall drag a world with us, a world in flames. Such phenomena, of course, are extreme, and they must be viewed in proper perspective. Only a few have been capable of such pure nihilism, but it could easily be argued that they do not belong to the mainstream of modern history, but to a side current, and less extreme nihilists condemn them. Their example has been, nonetheless, a, mostly, a most instructive one, and it would be a mistake to dismiss this example as mere exaggeration or parody. We shall see that destruction is an indispensable item in the program of nihilism, and further that it is the most unequivocal ex expression of the worship of nothingness that lies at the center of the nihilist theology. The nihilism of destruction is not an exaggeration. It is rather a fulfillment of the deepest aim of all nihilism. In it, nihilism has assumed its most terrible, but its truest form. In it, the face of nothingness discards its masks and stands revealed in all its nakedness. Father John of Kronstadt, that holy man of God, has likened the soul of man to an eye, diseased through sin and thus incapable of seeing the spiritual sun. The same likeness may serve to trace the progress of the disease of nihilism, which is no more than an elaborate mask of sin. The spiritual eye and fallen human nature is not sound, as every Orthodox Christian knows. We see in this life only dimly and require faith in the grace of God to effect a healing that will enable us in the future life to see clearly once more. The first stage of nihilism, which is liberalism, is born of the errors of taking our deceased eye for a sound one, of mistaking its impaired vision for a view of the true world, and thus of discharging the physician of the soul, the church, whose ministrations are not needed by a healthy man. In the second stage, realism, the disease, no longer attended by the necessary physician, begins to grow. Vision is narrowed. Distant objects, already obscure enough in the natural state of impaired vision, become invisible. Only the nearest objects are seen distinctly, and the patient becomes convinced no others exist. In the third stage, vitalism, infection leads to inflammation. Even the nearest objects become dim and distorted, and there are hallucinations. In the fourth stage, the nihilism of destruction, blindness ensues, and the disease spreads to the rest of the body, affecting agony, convulsions, and death. And thus ends the breakdown of the four 
stages of the nihilist dialectic. That one was short, but I mean, it was pretty straight to the point. I didn't even feel the need to, to try to step in or clarify anything or add any thoughts. It was basically straight to the point. So now we proceed to the next section of the book, the theology and the spirit of nihilism. And the first section of that section is rebellion, the war against God. Our inquiry, inquiry thus far has concentrated upon definition and description. If it has been successful, it has identified the nihilist mentality and furnished some idea of its origins and extent. All this, however, has been but necessary groundwork for the task to which we must now turn, an exploration of the deeper meaning of nihilism. Our earlier examination has been historical, psychological, philosophical. But the revolution, as we saw in the last chapter, has a theological and spiritual foundation, even if its theology is an inverted one and its spirituality satanic. The Orthodox Christian finds in the revolution a formidable antagonist, and one that must be fought fairly and thoroughly with the best weapons at his disposal. It is time then to attack the nihilist doctrine at its root, to inquire into its theological sources, its spiritual roots, its ultimate program, and its role in the Christian theology of history. Nihilist doctrine is not, of course, explicit in most nihilists. And if our analysis to this point has had to draw out implications that were not always obvious to, and often not intended by nihilists themselves, our attempt here to extract a coherent doctrine from the literature and phenomena of nihilism will seem to many to carry us to yet more tenuous conclusions. So, in other words, he's saying the actual exponents of nihilism probably wouldn't agree with his analysis to this point, and even more so, they're not going to agree moving forward. In this task, we are, however, greatly aided by systematic nihilists like Nietzsche, who express unequivocally what others only suggest or attempt to disguise, and by acute observers of the nihilist mentality like Dostoevsky, whose insights strike to the very heart of nihilism and strip aside its masks. There's a, a, a podcast, the Martyr Made podcast. I can't remember if it's called the Martyr Made podcast or if it's a podcast done by a guy who calls himself Martyr Made. Um, but either way, if you look up Martyr Made, uh, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, it's one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. He's he's comparing and contrasting the two of them who had very, very similar parallel lives. Um, and uh, one of them uh, winds up, one of them has a happy ending, one of them doesn't. I'll put it that way. Um, but it, I mean, it's like a four-hour podcast, but it's one of the best I've ever heard. So I'd strongly recommend that. In no one has the nihilist, uh, let me make sure, yeah, okay. In no one has the nihilist revelation been more clearly expressed than in Nietzsche. We have already seen this revelation in its philosophical form in the phrase, there is no truth. Its alternative, more explicitly theological expression in Nietzsche is the constant theme significantly of the inspired prophet, Zarathustra. And in its earliest occurrence in Nietzsche's writings, it is the ecstatic utterance of a madman, God is dead. The words express a certain truth, not, to be sure, a truth of the nature of things, but a truth concerning the state of modern man. They are an imaginative attempt, imaginative attempt to describe a fact no Christian, surely, will deny. Silver Pie, yo, King Pilled, I'll listen later, sending in a chat for the algorithm. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. What's up, John Lloyd, John Lee? Appreciate you guys. Let's continue. God is dead in the hearts of modern man. This is what the death of God means. 
And it is as true of the atheists and Satanists who rejoice in the fact, as it is of the unsophisticated multitudes in whom the sense of spiritual reality has simply disappeared. Man has lost faith in God and in the divine truth that once sustained him. The apostasy to worldliness that has characterized the modern age since its beginning becomes, in Nietzsche, conscious of itself and finds words to express itself. God is dead. That is to say, we have lost our faith in God. There is no truth. That is to say, we have become uncertain of everything divine and absolute. Deeper, however, than the subjective fact the nihilist revelation expresses lie a will and a plan that go far beyond any mere acceptance of fact. Zarathustra is a prophet. His words are clearly intended as a counter-revolution directed against the Christian revelation. For those indeed who accept the new revelation, i.e., for those who feel it to be up to those for those who feel it to be their own self-confession, or who live as though it were, an entirely new spiritual universe opens up in which God exists no longer, in which, more significantly, men do not wish God to exist. Nietzsche's madman knows that men have murdered God, have killed their own faith. It is decidedly wrong, then, to regard the modern nihilist, in whatever guise he may appear, as agnostic. The death of God has not simply happened to him as a kind of cosmic catastrophe. Rather, he has actively willed it, not directly, to be sure, but equally effectively by preferring something else to the true God. Nor is the nihilist, let us note, really atheistic. It may be doubted, indeed, if there exists such a thing as atheism, for no one denies the true God except to devote himself to the service of a false God. The atheism that is possible to the philosopher, though it is, of course, bad philosophy, is not possible to the whole man. The anarchist Proudhon, whose doctrine we shall examine more closely in the next chapter, saw this clearly enough and declared himself not an atheist, but an anti-theist. The revolution, quote, the revolution is not atheistic in the strictest sense of the word. It does not deny the absolute. It eliminates it. No, no coincidence that Proudhon was a, a um, significantly influential libertarian prior to libertarian being a thing. Another quote, the first duty of man on becoming intelligent and free is to continually hunt the idea of God out of his mind and conscience. For God, if he exists, is essentially hostile to our nature. Every step we take in advance is a victory in which we crush divinity. Close quote. That's interesting. For God, if he exists, is essentially hostile to our nature. The, uh, he got it, as, as these guys are, are wont to do. He got that exactly backwards. Mankind, modern man, fallen man, is essentially hostile to God's nature. We aren't created to be hostile to God na God's nature, but we've taken that on ourselves. And it's been through processes like what he's describing here. So this influential proto-libertarian says that the first duty of man on becoming intelligent and free, which I wonder how you become intelligent and free. You're not originally intelligent and free, but you become intelligent and free. It's interesting. Is to continually hunt the idea of God out of his mind and conscience. In case you had any doubts about what libertarian theory and philosophy is rooted in, that's what it's rooted in. Humanity must be made to see that, quote, God, if there is a God, is its enemy, close quote. Albert Camus, in effect, teaches the same doctrine when he raises rebellion and not unbelief to the rank of first principle. Bakunin, too, was not content to refute the existence of God. Quote, 
If God really existed, it would be necessary to abolish him. More effectively, the Bolshevist atheism of our century has been quite obviously a war to the death against God and all his works. Revolutionary nihilism stands irrevocably and explicitly against God. But philosophical and existentialist nihilism, a fact not always so clear, is equally anti-theistic in its assumption that modern life must henceforth continue without God. The army of the enemies of God is recruited as much from the many who passively accept their position in the rear guard as from the few active enthusiasts who occupy the front ranks. You can, you can, this is kind of like the, the, the sinning by omission and sinning by commission. If you're just going to passively be swept along with the currents, you're just as guilty as those who are actively driving the currents. Maybe not active, maybe that's not a precise way of saying it. It's not that you're equally guilty. It's that you are just as responsible for the position that you're in as they are for the position that they're in. Passivity and acquiescence is not a uh, an excuse or a justification. More important to observe, however, is the fact that the ranks of anti-theism are swelled not only by active and passive atheists, but by many who think themselves religious and worship some god. Robespierre established a cult of the supreme being. Hitler recognized the existence of a supreme force, a god within men. And all forms of nihilist vitalism have a god, something like Hitler's. The war against God is capable of a variety of stratagems, among them the use of the name of God and even of Christ. But whether it is explicitly atheist or agnostic, or takes the form of a worship of some new god, nihilism has for its foundation the declaration of war against the true god. So here's the... He, he kind of categorizes all three of the, 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 the first three stages of the nihilist dialectic here. Explicitly atheist would be like the, the realists. Agnostic would be like the liberals. And then the worship of some new god would be the vitalists. All, all three of them are characterized by, at their foundation, a declaration of war against the true god. And it's in the, the nihilism of destruction, the fourth stage, that that becomes explicit. The, the liberal is in a war against God, the liberal in, in, the, in the context that he's using it here, is in a war against the true God through the passivity, the acquiescence, agnosticism, refusal to acknowledge and defend God against attacks. The realist is more explicitly hostile to God. And then the vitalist is in a war against God because he's worshiping some a, a God other than the true God. Formal atheism is the philosophy of a fool, if we may so paraphrase the psalmist. But antitheism is a profounder malady. The literature of anti-theism, to be sure, is as full of inconsistencies and contradictions as, as is formerly atheist literature. But where the latter errs through childishness, and the most sophisticated man in one discipline can easily be a child in theology and the spiritual life, and through plain insensitivity to spiritual realities, the former owes its distortions to a deep-seated passion that, recognizing these realities, wills to destroy them. So let me parse that here a little bit. So... um. Uh, both anti-theism and atheist, anti-theist and atheist literature is full of inconsistencies and contradictions. Formal, formerly atheist literature errs through childishness and plain insensitivity to spiritual realities, 
but anti-theist literature owes its distortions to a deep-seated passion that recognizes those spiritual realities and actively wishes to destroy them. This is like explicit warfare against the kingdom of God. The petty arguments of Bertrand Russell, though even his atheism is, of course, ultimately a kind of anti-theism, are easily explained and refuted, and they are no danger to a secure faith. But the profound and determined attack of Proudhon is a different matter, for it is born not of bloodless sophistry, but of great fervor. Here we must face squarely a fact at which we have hinted before now, but which we have not yet fully examined. Nihilism is animated by a faith as strong in its own way and as spiritual in its root as the Christian faith it attempts to destroy and supplant. Its success and its exaggerations are explicable in no other way. We have seen Christian faith to be the spiritual context wherein the questions of God, truth, and authority become meaningful and inspire consent. Nihilist faith is similarly a context, a distinctive spirit which underlies and gives meaning and power to nihilist doctrine. The success of nihilism in our time has been dependent upon, and may be measured by, the spread of this spirit. Its arguments seem persuasive not to the degree, not to the degree that they are true, but to the degree that this spirit has prepared men to accept them. That's a, I think this is a really profound observation here. The arguments aren't persuasive because of the matter of their truth. It's that by the time you've gotten to this explicit, dogmatic, open hostility against God, the, the average man has been basically beaten or worn down into submission through the success of three stages, through the, the years of listening to liberal skepticism and realist boneheadism and vitalist um, wackery, that everyone's faith has kind of just been worn down and whittled down to the point where, where originally hearing the explicit open hostility toward God would have provoked a strong reaction in people. Now that the spirit of God has been so suppressed that many people are willing to just kind of shrug or even passively go along with this open hostility, not because it's coherent, but because they no longer have the context in which to oppose it. What then is the nature of the nihilist faith? It is the precise opposite of Christian faith, and so not properly called faith at all. Where Christian faith is joyous, certain, serene, loving, humble, patient, submitting in all things to the will of God, its nihilist counterpart is full of doubt, suspicion, disgust, envy, jealousy, pride, impatience, rebelliousness, blasphemy, one or more of these qualities predominating in any given personality. It is an attitude of dissatisfaction with self, with the world, with society, with God. It knows but one thing, that it will not accept things as they are, but must devote its energies either to changing them or fleeing from them. It was well described by Bakunin as, quote, the sentiment of rebellion, the satanic pride, which spurns subjection to any master whatever, whether of divine or human origin. Close quote. Bakunin is another uh, proto-libertarian thinker. Quite interesting that these are the people who 
were the uh, uh, major influencers of packaging the libertarian doctrine together. Nihilist rebellion, like Christian faith, is an ultimate and irreducible spiritual attitude, having its source and its strength in itself, and, of course, in the supernatural author of rebellion. We shall be unprepared to understand the nature or the success of nihilism or the existence of systematic representatives of it, like Lenin and... I'm not sure what that's supposed to be. Hyde. It says Hyde, H-I-D-E. It looks like it's a typo. Um, but I'm not thinking of someone that that would make sense to be otherwise. Okay, so the systematic representatives of it, like Lenin and maybe Hitler, that's pretty far removed from it. Um, let me start this sentence over again. We shall be unprepared to understand the nature or the success of nihilism or the existence of systematic representatives of it, like Lenin, if we seek its source anywhere but in the primal satanic will to negation and rebellion. Most nihilists, of course, understand this will as something positive and as the source of independence and freedom. But the very language in which men like Bakunin find it necessary to express themselves betrays the deeper import of their words to anyone prepared to take them seriously. The nihilist rejection of Christian faith and institutions, then, is the result not so much of a loss of faith in them and their divine origin, though no nihilism being pure, this skepticism is present also, as of rebellion against the authority they represent and the obedience they command. What he's pointing out here is that the Christian faith and institutions haven't been rejected in the modern age so much because people have lost faith in them or, or don't believe um, in their divine origin, but rather because these people are motivated by a spirit of explicit rebellion against the authority of God in the church. So, even if they were to be persuaded rationally that the, the the church is a proper divine institution and God is who the church claims he is, that wouldn't convert them. These are people who are explicitly set in hostile opposition to the church no matter what. Because they're animated by the spirit of rebellion and revolution and negation and um, complete dissatisfaction with the world as it is. It's very, I mean, it's very egoist. You mentioned Sterner. It's very, um, uh, uh, it's a it's a complete negation of external truth and a complete embrace of subjective truth. A complete complete embrace of one's own individualism. That the only thing that is real is the self and my perspective. It's solipsism. The literature of 19th century humanism, socialism, and anarchism has as its constant theme the non servium. God the Father, all together with all his institutions and ministers, is to be overthrown and crushed, and triumphant man is to ascend his throne to rule in his own right. This literature, intellectually mediocre, oh, <laughs> nice, nice little barb. This literature, intellectually mediocre, owes its power and its continuing influence to its righteous indignation against the injustices and tyranny of the Father and his earthly representatives. To its passion, that is, and not to its truth. This rebellion, this messianic fervor that animates the greatest revolutionaries, being an inverse faith, is less concerned to demolish the philosophical and theological foundation of the old order, that task can be left to less fervent souls, than to destroy the rival faith which gave it life. In other words, debate is a trap. They're not interested in debating and evaluating the premises and coming to the ra rational conclusion. 
they'll use debate as a means of um, uh, platforming their uh, their battle cry, but they're going to be there to humiliate and destroy and undermine explicitly in bad faith, which is exactly how their representatives behave. Doctrines and institutions may be reinterpreted, emptied of their Christian content, and filled with a new nihilist content. But Christian faith, the soul of these doctrines and institutions, and alone capable of discerning this reinterpretation and effectively opposing it, must be completely destroyed before it can itself be reinterpreted. Because it's not the it's not the doctrines and the institutions themselves. It's the faith of the people who sustain them and preserve them. You have to destroy that faith before you can truly destroy the doctrines and the institutions. Sometimes you can use little changes in the doctrines and the institutions as a means of destroying that faith, but the ultimate goal is the destruction of the faith. It's it's a it's they're driving for a comprehensive victory. They don't just want to win a battle, they want to win the war. They want to destroy their opposition at all costs. Because if they don't, if they just win a battle, then they know fully good and well that that faith, even if it's just a mustard seed, it's going to grow and it'll come back. Uh, let's see. Uh, this is a practical necessity if nihilism is to triumph. More, it is a psychological and even a spiritual necessity for nihilist rebellion dim dimly senses that the truth resides in Christian faith. And its jealousy and its uneasy conscience will not be appeased until the total abolition of faith has justified its position and proved its truth. On a minor scale, this is the psychology of the Christian apostate. On a major scale, it is the psychology of Bolshevism. The systematic Bolshevik campaign to uproot Christian faith, even when it has clearly ceased to be a danger to the stability of the atheist state, has no rational explanation. It is rather part of a ruthless war to the death against the only force capable of standing against Bolshevism and of disproving it. Nihilism, he, by disproving it here, he's not talking about facts and figures and charts and great arguments. He's saying that the existence of Christian faith is a living disproof of the claims of Bolshevism. So in other words, so for Bolshevism to be sustained, that faith has to be destroyed. That faith has to be crushed and eliminated because even the tiniest example of it still existing is a living repudiation of Bolshevism. You could dig into what Bolshevism is, and you could go quite a few different directions with that as well. That's a, that is a, uh, that, what, what he's calling Bolshevism here. That's a, um, probably can't talk about some of that stuff on YouTube. Nihilism has failed as long as true Christian faith remains in a single person. For that person will be a living example of truth that will prove vain all the impressive worldly accomplishments of which nihilism is capable and will refute in his person all the arguments against God and the kingdom of heaven. Man's mind is supple, and it can be made to believe anything to which his will inclines. In an atmosphere permeated with nihilistic fervor, such as still exists in the Soviet Union, the soundest argument can do nothing to induce belief in God and immortality and faith. But a man of faith, even in this atmosphere, can speak to the heart of man and show by his example that what is impossible to the world and to the best of human intentions is still possible to God and to faith. 
So you're not going to argue people into the church, but you can witness them into the church. You can be a witness to them. Nihilist rebellion is a war against God and against truth, but few nihilists are fully aware of this. Explicit theological and philosophical nihilism is the preserve of a few rare souls. For most, nihilist rebellion takes the more immediate form of a war against authority. Many whose attitudes toward God and truth may seem ambiguous reveal their nihilism most clearly in their attitude toward, in Bakunin's words, the cursed and fatal principle of authority. This is where the, the people who are in opposition to authorities, St. Paul talks about our proper the, the, the proper Christian attitude toward authority and how we should relate to authority. And there's a lot of people who consider themselves Christians, and yet who embrace ideologies that are explicitly hostile to authority. And you can't be hostile to one form of authority. Like you can't be hostile toward fatherhood or kingship or um, governance. You can't be hostile to those things and favorable to God. Because those institutions, institutions of authority were granted their authority by God. And respecting that authority is respecting God. Disrespecting that authority is rejecting God. In other words, you can't be a Christian and a libertarian. The nihilist revelation thus declares most immediately the annihilation of authority. Some apologists are fond of citing corruptions, abuses, and injustices in the old order as justification for rebellion against it. But such things, the existence of which no one will deny, have been often the pretext, but never the cause of nihilist outbursts. It is authority itself that the nihilist attacks. In the political and social order, nihilism manifests itself as a revolution that intends not a mere change of government or a more or less widespread reform of the existing order, but the establishment of an entirely new conception of the end and means of government. In the religious order nihilism seeks, not a mere reform of the church and not even the foundation of a new church or religion, but a complete refashioning of the idea of religion and of spiritual experience. In art and literature, the nihilist is not concerned with the modification of old aesthetic canons regarding subject matter or style, nor with the development of new genres or traditions, but with a whole new approach to the question of artistic creation and a new definition of art. It's, it's, it's stripping everything to the baseboards and wanting to rebuild completely, destroy everything that exists and start over again. And I note in particular the first example he gives here in the political and social order, nihilism manifests itself as a revolution that intends not a mere change of government or a more or less widespread reform of the existing order, but the establishment of an entirely new conception of the end and means of government. So completely refashioning, redefining what government even means. This is a sign of nihilism. This is a... a, a um, uh, a cardinal indicator of nihilism is when you see these people that are like, we need to reimagine these age-old institutions from the ground up. It is the very first principles of these disciplines and no mere remote or faulty applications of them that nihilism attacks. The disorder so apparent in contemporary politics, religion, art, and other realms as well is a result of the deliberate and systematic annihilation of the foundations of authority in them. Unprincipled politics and morality, undisciplined artistic expression, indiscriminate religious experience, 
All are the direct consequences of the application to once stable sciences and disciplines of the attitude of rebellion. Nihilist rebellion has entered so deeply into the fiber of our age that resistance to it is feeble and ineffective. Popular philosophy and most serious thought devote their energies to apology for it. Camus, in fact, sees in rebellion the only self-evident truth left to the men of today, the only belief remaining to men who can no longer believe in God. His philosophy of rebellion is a skillful articulation of the spirit of the age, but it is hardly to be taken seriously as anything more than that. Thinkers of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment were as anxious as Camus is today to do without theology, to base their knowledge on nature. But if rebellion is all the natural man may know today, why is it that the natural man of the Renaissance or the Enlightenment seemed to know much more and thought himself to be a much nobler being? They took too much for granted, is the usual answer, and lived on Christian capital without knowing it. Today we are bankrupt and know it. Contemporary man, in a word, is disillusioned. But strictly speaking, one must be disillusioned of an illusion. If men have fallen away, not from illusion, but from truth, and this is indeed the case, then profounder reasoning is required to explain their present plight. That Camus can accept the rebel as the natural man, that he can find everything absurd except rebellion, means only one thing. He has been well-trained in the school of nihilism. He has learned to accept the fight against God as the natural state of man. He has learned to accept the fight against God as the natural state of man. That is a deep phrase. Who stands to benefit from man believing that the fight against God is his natural state? Not his present state his natural state. To such a state has nihilism reduced men. Before the modern age, the life of man was largely conditioned by the virtues of obedience, submission, and respect to God, to the church, to the lawful earthly authorities. To the modern man whom nihilism has enlightened, this old order is but a horrible memory of some dark past from which man has been liberated. Modern history has been the chronicle of the fall of every authority. The old order has been overthrown, and if a precarious stability is maintained in what is unmistakably an age of transition, a new order is clearly in the making. The age of the rebel is at hand. A new world order, indeed. Um, this, uh, what was this phrase here? He said, modern history has been the chronicle of the fall of every authority. Reminds me of the Norm MacDonald joke. Um, I don't remember, I'm going to butcher it, but the the, the basic idea of it is... Um, uh, I, I just learned that thankfully, uh, uh, the what is it like? The good guys have won every war in history. Um, thank goodness that that was the case. Thank goodness the bad guys never won. Um, the uh, it's a reminder that history is not a science. History is a narrative that we tell each other, and the person or people who write that narrative are the people who are employed by the people who won the history the people who won whatever happened because you can't go back and reproduce the events. Exactly. All you're going to get is a group of people who were there, who witnessed it and told other people what happened. Like imagine if you and a bunch of friends went on a camping trip over the weekend, you know, there's 10 of you there for this camping trip and a bunch of crazy stuff happens and y'all come home. You're going to have 10 different stories about what happened there. And there's going to be no way to reproduce what exactly happened. You can kind of triangulate it and you can get close based on if you ask all the stories and you compare and contrast them and you figure out where the gaps are, then you might be able to 
reproduce a a retelling of what happened, but that's necessarily going to be a subjective story. Now that's all history is. History is just that writ large. There's so many parts of history that we don't like you can read through an entire history of like a 10 year stretch of time and it'll be reduced to a couple of sentences in a history book. But think about everything that's happened over the last eight or so years here in the U S and imagine someone reducing that down to a couple of sentences and packaging that as the tale of what exactly happened. There's going to be like three people who actually lived through it, who are going to agree with whatever that summation is, but that's going to be taught as history someday. This is why, if you look at uh, what was the guy's name, um, the uh, the Italian commie who uh, uh, was imprisoned, uh, he was butthurt about it because Lenin wasn't imprisoned. Um, uh, Gramsci, uh, he talked about the long march of the institutions and the institutions that he t- he said the commies needed to take over were like schools, churches, families, media. They were all the narrative formation institutions because he recognized that in this war against God, we need to be the ones controlling the story. We need to be the ones who are telling our story and we need everyone else to believe and endorse our story. So we have to control the institutions that do that. And we can't co-opt existing institutions like we can, but they can't exist as co-opted existing institutions. They need to be brand new institutions. Need, the old institutions need to be abolished. We need a, we need the formation of brand new institutions with a whole new declared purpose, a whole new set of bylaws, so to speak. These all have to be built afresh. We have to create a whole new world. Sounding like Aladdin. Of this age, the nihilist regimes of this century have given a foretaste. And the widespread rebelliousness of the present day is a further portent. Where there is no truth, the rebellious will reign. But the will, or no, it's interesting, you could you can interpret this two different ways. Where there is no truth, the rebellious will reign. Or where there is no truth, the rebellious will reigns. And I think that's what it's supposed to be. Where there is no truth, the rebellious will reigns. But the will, said Dostoevsky, with his customary insight into the nihilist mentality, is closest to nothing. The most assertive are closest to the most nihilistic. He who has abandoned truth and every authority founded upon that truth has only blind will between himself and the abyss. And this will, whatever its spectacular achievements and its brief moment of power, those of Hitler and of Bolshevism have so far been the most spectacular, is irresistibly drawn to that abyss as to some immense magnet that has searched out the answering abyss within itself. In this abyss, this nothingness of the man who lives without truth, we come to the very heart of nihilism. What's up, Athanasius? That's a good name. All right, part two. Take another drink. Part two, the worship of nothingness. Nothingness, in the sense in which modern nihilism understands it, is a concept unique to the Christian tradition. 
the non-being of various Eastern traditions is an entirely different, a positive conception. The nearest they approach to the idea of nihil is in their obscure notion of primal chaos. God has spoken only obscurely and indirectly to other peoples. To his chosen people alone has he revealed the fullness of truth concerning the beginning and the end of things. To other peoples indeed, and to the unaided reason, one of the most difficult of Christian doctrines to understand is that of creatio ex nihilo. God's creation of the world not out of himself, not out of some pre-existent matter or primal chaos, but out of nothing. In no other doctrine is the omnipotence of God so plainly stated. The never-dimmed marvelousness of God's creation has its foundation precisely in this fact, that it was called into existence from absolute non-existence. We can't even comprehend what non-existence is, like absolute non-existence. It doesn't, like, anything we might kind of think of is going to be some variation of this primal chaos. But it's, it, we can't even, it doesn't even compute for us, the notion of of absolute nothing. When you think about nothing, you're thinking about something. That, that would be probably the easiest way to say it. But what relation, it may be asked, has nihilism to such a doctrine? It is the relation of denial. What, says Nietzsche in a statement whose last sentence we've already cited in a different context, does nihilism mean? That the highest values are losing their value. There is no goal. There is no answer to the question, why? Nihilism, in a word, owes its whole existence to a negation of Christian truth. It finds the world absurd, not as a result of dispassionate research into the question, but through inability or unwillingness to believe its Christian meaning. Only men who once thought they knew the answer to the question, why, could be so disillusioned to discover that there was no answer after all. Yet if Christianity were merely one religion or philosophy among many, its denial would not be a matter of such great import. Joseph de Maistre, who was astute in his criticism of the French Revolution, even if his more positive ideas are not to be trusted, saw the point precisely, and at a time when the effects of nihilism were far less obvious than they are today. Quoting from de Maistre, There have always been some forms of religion in the world and wicked men who opposed them. Impiety was always a crime too, but only in the bosom of the true religion can there be real impiety. Impiety has never produced in times past the evils which it has brought forth in our day, for its guilt is always directly proportional to the enlightenment which surrounds it. Although impious men have always existed, there never was before the 18th century and in the heart of Christendom an insurrection against God. Close quote. No other religion has affirmed so much and so strongly as Christianity, because its voice is the voice of God, and its truth is absolute. And no other religion has had so radical and uncompromising an enemy as nihilism. For no one can oppose Christianity without doing battle with God himself. There's a line for you. No one can oppose Christianity without doing battle with God himself. I wanted to go back here real quick to something here, this relation of denial. And this idea he's talking about of um, up here of the uh, nothingness. Where did he say it? Um, yeah, I think that was so, yeah, it was the, the, the relation of denial. Um, I think back to the debate that I had with Angela McArdle talking about uh, the LPMC. And I would ask 
she's like, well, you know, we're going to do this stuff and this stuff and this stuff. And I would say, okay, and then what? Okay, and then what? Okay, and then what? And there was just no, like, you could tell that she hadn't even encountered the question. It hadn't even occurred to her. She hadn't even thought about it. Which was really, um, honestly, I found very typical of the libertarian world that I, I existed in. I, I, was, I recognized this in my own thinking, that the, the focus of the modern libertarian mind is a purely negative focus. It's just get rid of these things we don't like. There is no positive affirmation. If there ever is any kind of positive affirmation, it's degenerate. It's a positive affirmation for people to be able to glorify their own willpower, to glorify their own will. That's the only form of positive affirmation that exists in the libertarian philosophy. Otherwise, it's purely a negation. It's, it's completely nihilistic. To fight the very God who has created him out of nothingness requires, of course, a certain blindness, as well as the illusion of strength. But no nihilist is so blind that he fails to sense, however dimly, the ultimate consequences of his action. The nameless anxiety of so many men today testifies to their passive participation in the program of anti-theism. The more articulate speak of an abyss that seems to have opened up within the heart of men. This anxiety and this abyss are precisely the nothingness out of which God has called each man into being, and back to which man seems to fall when he denies God and, in consequence, denies his own creation and his own being. This, is, this might be the most powerful paragraph in the entire book. I'm going to read it one more time. To fight the very God who has created him out of nothingness requires, of course, a certain blindness, as well as the illusion of strength. But no nihilist is so blind that he fails to sense, however dimly, the ultimate consequences of his action. And those consequences are the nameless anxiety of so many men today testifies to their passive participation in the program of anti-theism. The more articulate speak of an abyss that seems to have opened up within the heart of men. This anxiety and this abyss are precisely the nothingness. But not just the nothingness that they're arguing for, but the nothingness out of which God has called each man into being. They're arguing for the the pre-existent state before they even came into existence. They're arguing for nothingness, which is the abyss to which man seems to fall back when he denies God and in consequence denies his own creation and his own being. When you deny God, you deny your own creation. You are in active war with your own existence. The fear of falling out of being, as it were, is the most pervasive kind of nihilism today. It is the constant theme of the arts and the prevailing note of absurdist philosophy. But it is a more conscious nihilism, the nihilism of the explicit anti-theist, that has been more directly responsible for the calamities of our century. To the man afflicted with such nihilism, the sense of falling into the abyss, far from ending in passive anxiety and despair, is transformed into a frenzy of satanic energy that impels him to strike out at the whole of creation, and bring it, if he can, plummeting into the abyss with him. Yet in the end, a Proudhon, a Bakunin, a Lenin, a Hitler, however great their temporary influence and success, must fail. They must even testify against their will to the truth they would destroy. For their endeavor to annihilate Christian, sorry, 
For their endeavor to nihilize creation and so annul God's act of creation by returning to the returning the world to the very nothingness from which it came is but an inverted parody of God's creation. And they, like their father the devil, are but feeble apes of God who, in their attempt, prove the existence of the God they deny and in their failure testify to his power and glory. I'm going to read that last sentence again because I kind of stumbled through it. For their endeavor to nihilize creation and so annul God's act of creation by returning the world to the very nothingness from which it came is but an inverted parody of God's creation. And they, like their father the devil, are but feeble apes of God who, in their attempt, prove the existence of the God they deny and in their failure testify to his power and glory. No man, we have said often enough, lives without a God. Who then, or what, is the God of the nihilist? It is nihil, nothingness itself. Not the nothingness of absence or non-existence, but of apostasy and denial. It is the corpse of the dead God which weighs, which so weighs upon the nihilist. The God hitherto so real and so present to Christian men cannot be disposed of overnight. So absolute a monarch can have no immediate successor. So it is that at the present moment of man's spiritual history, a moment admittedly of crisis and transition, a dead God, a great void, stands at the center of men's faith. The nihilist wills the world, which once, which once revolved about God, to revolve now about nothing. Can this be an order founded upon nothing? Of course it can't. It is self-contradiction. It is suicide. But let us not expect coherence from modern thinkers. This is, in fact, the point modern thought and its revolution have reached in our time. If it is a point that can be held only for a moment, if it has been reached only to be very quickly superseded, its reality cannot for all that be denied. There are many signs, which we shall examine in their place, that the world has begun to move out of the age of nihilism since the, since the end of the last great war and towards some kind of new age. But in any case, this new age, if it come, will not see the overcoming of nihilism, but its perfection. The revolution reveals its truest face in nihilism without repentance, and there has been none. What comes after can only be a mask hiding that same face. Whether overtly in the explicit antitheism of Bolshevism, fascism, Nazism, or passively in the cult of indifference and despair, absurdism and existentialism, modern man has clearly revealed his resolve to live henceforth without God. That is to say, in a void, in nothingness. Before our century, the well-meaning could still delude themselves that liberalism and humanism, science and progress, the revolution itself and the whole path of modern thought were something positive and even in some vague sense had God on their side. It is quite clear now that the revolution and God can have nothing to do with each other. There is no room in a consistent modern philosophy for God at all. All further modern thought, whatever disguises it may assume, must presuppose this, must be built upon, built upon the void left by the death of God. The revolution, in fact, cannot be completed until the last vestige of faith in the true God is uprooted from the hearts of men, and everyone has learned to live in this void. From faith comes coherence. The world of faith, which was once the normal world, is a supremely coherent world, because in it, everything is oriented to God as to its beginning and end, and obtains its meaning in that orientation. 
Nihilist rebellion in destroying that world has inspired a new world, the world of the absurd. This word, very much in fashion at the present time to describe the plight of contemporary man, has actually, if properly understood, a profound meaning. For if nothingness be the center of the world, then the world, both in its essence and in every detail, is coherent. It fails to hold together. It is absurd. No one has more clearly and succinctly described this world than Nietzsche, its prophet. And in the very passage where he first proclaimed its first principle, the death of God. Quoting from Nietzsche, We have killed him, God. You and I, we are all his murderers. But how have we done it? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whither does it move now? Whither do we move? Away from all suns? Do we not dash on unceasingly? Backwards, sideways, forwards, in all directions? Is there still an above and below? Do we not stray as through infinite nothingness? Does not empty space breathe upon us? Has it not become colder? Does not night come on continually, darker and darker? Close quote. Such is the nihilist universe, in which there is neither up nor down, right nor wrong, true nor false, because there is no longer any point of orientation. Where there once was God, there is now nothing. Where there, once, where there were once authority, order, certainty, faith, there are now anarchy, confusion, arbitrary and unprincipled action, doubt, and despair. This is the universe so vividly described by the Swiss Catholic Max Picard as the world of the flight from God and, alternatively, as the world of discontinuity and disjointedness. Nothingness, incoherence, anti-theism, hatred of truth. What we have been discussing in this, these pages is nothing more than mere philosophy, more even than a rebellion of man against a God he will no longer serve. A subtle intelligence lies behind these phenomena and on an intricate plan which philosopher and revolutionary alike merely serve and do not command. We have to do with the work of Satan. Many nihilists, indeed, far from disputing this fact, glory in it. Bakunin found himself on the side of, quote, Satan, the eternal rebel, the first free thinker and emancipator of worlds. Nietzsche proclaimed himself antichrist. Poets, decadents, and the avant-garde in general since the Romantic era have been greatly fascinated by Satanism, and some have even tried to make it a religion. Proudhon, in so many words, actually invoked Satan. Come to me, Lucifer, Satan, whoever you may be, devil whom the faith of my fathers contrasted with God and the church. I will act as spokesman for you and will demand nothing of you. <laughs> That's pretty explicit, man. What is the Orthodox Christian to think of such words? Apologists and scholars of nihilist thought, when they regard such passages as worthy of comment at all, usually dismiss them as imaginative exaggerations, as bold metaphors to express a perhaps childish rebellion. To be sure, it must be admitted that there is a juvenile quality in the expression of most of modern Satanism. Those who so easily invoke Satan and proclaim Antichrist can have very little awareness of the full import of their words, and few intend them to be taken with entire seriousness. This naive bravado reveals, nonetheless, a deeper truth. The nihilist revolution stands against authority and order, against truth, against God. And to do this is clearly to stand with Satan. The nihilist, since he usually believes in neither God nor Satan, may think it mere cleverness to defend in his fight against God the age-old enemy of God. But while he may think he is doing no more than playing with words, he is actually speaking the truth. In other words, there's no such thing as ironic Satan worship. 
De Maestra and later Donoso Cortez, writing in a day when the Church of Rome was more aware of the meaning of the revolution than it is now and was still capable of taking a strong stand against it, called the revolution a satanic manifestation, and historians smile at them. Fewer perhaps smile today when the same phrase is applied, though rarely with full seriousness even now, to national socialism or Bolshevism. And some may even begin to suspect that there exist forces and causes that have somehow escaped the attention of their enlightened gaze. All right, let's see how much more we've got here. The nihilist program, the destruction of the old order, the making of the new earth, the fashioning of the new man, beyond nihilism. So let's see, I think, I think it'll be good to read one more section here to make sure that I can get the, the rest of it done in, um, in uh, two episodes. So let's scroll back up here. All right, so we'll go through the making of the new earth down here. All right. Gotta take another drink. All right. What are you guys thinking of this so far? Give me some feedback. I'll keep reading, but you guys can uh, can type your thoughts. Part four, the nihilist program. War against God issuing in the proclamation of the reign of nothingness, which means the triumph of incoherence and absurdity, the whole plan presided over by Satan. This, in brief, is the theology and the meaning of nihilism. But man cannot live by such blatant negation. Unlike Satan, he cannot even desire it for its own sake, but only by mistaking it for something positive and good. And in fact, no nihilist, apart from a few moments of frenzy and enthusiasm or perhaps despair, has ever seen his negation as anything but the means to a higher goal. Nihilism furthers its satanic ends by means of a positive program. The most violent revolutionaries, a Nechayev or Bakunin, a Lenin or Hitler, and even the demented practitioners of the propaganda of the deed, dreamed of a new or of the new order their violent destructions of the old order would make possible. Dada and anti-literature seek not the total destruction of art, but the path to a new art. The passive nihilist, in his existential apathy and despair, sustains life only by the vague hope that he may yet find some kind of ultimate satisfaction in a world that seems to deny it. The content of the nihilist dream is, then, a positive one. But truth requires that we view it in proper perspective not through the rose-colored spectacles of the nihilist himself, but in the realistic manner our century's intimate acquaintance with nihilism permits. Armed with the knowledge of this acquaintance, armed with the knowledge this acquaintance affords, and with the Christian truth which enables us to interpret it aright, we shall attempt to look behind the nihilist phrases to see the realities they conceal. Seen in this perspective, the very phrases which to the nihilist seem entirely positive appear to the Orthodox Christian in another light as items in a program quite different from that of nihilist apologetics. Tubit said, loving this, loving it. This is the series I wanted to do, but never found the time and mental bandwidth to attempt. You're killing it. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. It's pretty easy to sit here and just, just read it. And he speaks for himself. Number one, the destruction of the old order. The first and most obvious item in the program of nihilism is the destruction of the old order. 
The old order was the soil nourished by Christian truth in which men had their roots. Its laws and institutions and even its customs were founded in that truth and dedicated to teaching it. Its buildings were erected to the glory of God and were a visible sign of his order upon earth. Even the generally primitive, but natural, living conditions served, unintentionally of course, as a reminder of man's humble place here, of his dependence upon God for even the few earthly blessings he possessed, and of his true home which lies beyond this veil of tears in the kingdom of heaven. Effective war against God and his truth requires the destruction of every element of this old order. It is here that the peculiarly nihilist virtue of violence comes into play. Violence is no mere incidental aspect of the nihilist revolution, but a part of its essence. According to Marxist dogma, quote, force is the midwife of every old society pregnant with a new one. Appeals to violence and even a kind of ecstasy at the prospect of its use abound in revolutionary literature. Bakunin invoked the evil passions and called for the unchaining of popular anarchy and the cause of universal destruction, and his revolutionary catechism is the primer of ruthless violence. Marx was fervent in his advocacy of revolutionary terror as the one means of hastening the advent of communism. Lenin defined the dictatorship of the proletariat, the stage in which the Soviet Union still finds itself, as a domination that is untrammeled by law and based on violence. Demagogic incitement of the masses and the arousing of the basis passions for revolutionary purposes have long been standard nihilist practice. The spirit of violence has been most thoroughly incarnated in our century by the nihilist regimes of Bolshevism and National Socialism. It is to these that there have been assigned the principal roles in the nihilist task of the destruction of the old order. The two, whatever their psychological dissimilarities and the historical accidents which place them in opposing camps, have been partners in their frenzied accomplishment of this task. Bolshevism, to be sure, has had the more positive role of the two, since it has been able to justify its monstrous crimes by an appeal to a pseudo-Christian messianic idealism, which Hitler scorned. Hitler's role in the nihilist program was more specialized and provincial, but nonetheless essential. Even in failure, in fact, precisely in the failure of its ostensible aims, Nazism served the cause of this program. Quite apart from the political and ideological benefits which the Nazi interlude in European history gave to the communist powers, communism, it is now widely and erroneously believed, if evil in itself, still cannot be as evil as Nazism. Nazism had another, more obvious and direct function. Goebbels explained this function in his radio broadcasts in the last days of the war. Hold on. I'm getting a phone call coming in. All right, hopefully that didn't mess up the stream at all. Quoting Goebbels, The bomb terror spares the dwellings of neither rich nor poor. Before the labor offices of total war, the last class barriers have had to go down. Together with the monuments of culture, there crumble also the last obstacles to the fulfillment of our revolutionary task. Now that everything is in ruins, we are forced to rebuild Europe. In the past, private possessions tied us to a bourgeois restraint. Now the bombs, instead of killing all Europeans, have only smashed the prison walls which kept them captive. In trying to destroy Europe's future, the enemy has only succeeded in smashing its past. And with that, everything old and outworn has gone. Close quote. Nazism thus, and its war, have done for Central Europe, and less thoroughly for Western Europe, what Bolshevism did in its revolution for Russia. Destroyed the old order and thus cleared the way for the building of the new. 
Bolshevism then had no difficulty in taking over where Nazism had left off. Within a few years, the whole uh, okay, yeah, this is a run on sentence. Uh, so okay, Bolshevism then had no difficulty in taking over where Nazism had left off. Within a few years, the whole of Central Europe had passed under the dictatorship of the proletariat, i.e. Bolshevist tyranny, for which Nazism had effectively prepared the way. The nihilism of Hitler was too pure, too unbalanced, to have more than a negative preliminary role to play in the whole nihilist program. Its role, like the role of the purely negative first phase of Bolshevism, is now finished, and the next stage belongs to a power possessing a more complete view of the whole revolution. The Soviet power upon which Hitler bestowed, in effect, his inheritance in the words, the future belongs solely to the stronger Eastern nation. Part 2. The Making of the New Earth But we do not yet have to do with the ultimate future, with the end of the revolution. Between the revolution of destruction and the earthly paradise, there lies a stage of transition, known in Marxist doctrine as the dictatorship of the proletariat. In this stage, we may see a second, constructive function of violence. The nihilist Soviet power has been the most ruthless and systematic in developing this stage, but precisely the same work is being accomplished by the realists of the free world, who have been quite successful in transforming and simplifying the Christian tradition into a system for the promotion of worldly progress. The ideal of Soviet and Western realists is an identical one, pursued by the former with single-minded fervor, by the latter more spontaneously and sporadically, not always directly by governments, but with their encouragement, relying more upon individual initiative and ambition. Realists everywhere envisage a totally new order built entirely by men liberated from the yoke of God and upon the ruins of an old order whose foundation was divine. The revolution of nihilism, willed or unwilled, is accepted. And through the labor of workers in all realms, on both sides of the Iron Curtain, a new, purely human kingdom is arising, in which its apologists see a new earth undreamed of by past ages, an earth totally exploited, controlled, and organized for the sake of man and against the true God. It's really remarkable the foresight that this man had. I mean, Jay Dyer has dedicated an entire YouTube channel career to uh, like uh, outlining in painstaking detail how this is a reality, how this is something that has been planned and coordinated and uh, intentionally manufactured for generations. And he's, he's, Father Seraphim has the entire uh, spiritual underpinning of the program precisely dialed in. No place is secure from the encroaching empire of this nihilism. Everywhere, men feverishly pursue the work of progress, for what reason they do not know, or only very dimly sense. In the free world, it is perhaps a horror vacui that chiefly impels men into feverish activity that promises forgetfulness of the spiritual emptiness that attends all worldliness. In the communist world, a large role is still played by hatred against real and imagined enemies, but primarily against the god their revolution has dethroned a hatred that inspires them to remake the world against him. In either case, it is a cold, inhuman world that men without God are fashioning, a world where there are everywhere organization and efficiency, and nowhere love or reverence. The sterile purity and functionalism of contemporary architecture are a typical expression of such a world. The same spirit is present in the disease of total planning, 
for example, in birth control, in experiments that look to the control of heredity and of the mind, in the welfare state. Some of the apologies for such schemes approach perilously near a strange kind of lucid insanity, wherein precision of detail and technique are united to an appalling insensitivity to the inhuman end these schemes serve. Nihilist organization, the total transformation of the earth and society by machines, modern architecture and design, and the inhuman philosophy of human engineering that accompanies them, is a consequence of the unqualified acceptance of the industrialism and technology which we saw in the last chapter as bearers of a worldliness that, if unchecked, must end in tyranny. Essentially, like the, the, the mechanization of the entire world. Who would have thought that when you begin thinking of human beings as subjectively fungible widgets, then pretty soon society is going to start looking like a machine that is optimizing for outputs at the expense of the inputs. The inputs being the people who are generating the outputs. In it, we may see a practical translation of the philosophical development we touched upon in section one above, the transformation of truth into power. What may seem harmless in philosophical pragmatism and skepticism becomes something else again in the planners of our own day. For if there is no truth, power knows no limit save that imposed by the medium in which it functions or by a stronger power opposed to it. The power of contemporary planners will find its natural limit if unopposed, only in a regime of total organization. Such, indeed, was the dream of Lenin. For before the dictatorship of the proletariat comes to an end, quote, the whole of society will have become one office and one factory with equal work and equal pay. Kind of sounds very transhumanist-y. In the nihilist new earth, all human energy is to be devoted to worldly concerns. The whole human environment and every object in it are to serve the cause of production and to remind men that their only happiness lies in this world. There is to be established, in fact, the absolute despotism of worldliness. The artificial world erected by men who will to remove the last vestige of divine influence in the world and the last trace of faith in men promises to be so all-encompassing and so omnipresent that it will be all but impossible for men to see, to imagine, or even to hope for anything beyond it. This is just precisely, precisely predicting the world that we live in today and increasingly over the next coming years. This world, from the nihilist point of view, will be one of perfect realism and total liberation. In actual fact, it will be the vastest and most, most efficient prison men have ever known. For, in the precise words of Lenin, quote, there will be no way of getting away from it, there will be nowhere to go. The power of the world, which nihilists trust as Christians trust, trust their God, can never liberate. It can only enslave. And Christ alone, who has overcome the world, is their deliverance from that power, even when it shall have become all but absolute. All right. Stop screen sharing here. The great reset is just the old reset made new. There you go. Shout out 2-Bit Podcast. Shout out Mark and Jason. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll continue with this. Probably won't do a stream tomorrow or Sunday. Um, so hopefully Monday um, we'll be back at it and we'll do um, 
we'll get through a little bit more of this. I think I've got the fashioning of the new man. I've got about three pages there. Uh, Beyond nihilism. That. Yeah, we've got actually, I might even be able to finish all of this in one more, one more episode. So um, yeah, I think that's what I'll do. I think I'll be able to finish all of this in one more episode. So looks like most likely it'll be Monday. Um, we'll get this one. Uh, we'll finish it, finish it up and then um, probably just launch right into orthodoxy and the religion of the future. Unless you guys have some other subject that you want me to talk about. Um, I've got a couple interesting people that I'm going to bring in for, for interviews here in the near future. But um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just going to keep, keep hammering these out, keep reading these. Um, if you guys can share them, that'd be great. Uh, I think this is a, an interesting way to be introduced to Father Seraphim's ideas and, uh, and his writing. And uh, I need your guys' help. So um, I, I started the, the, the channel and, and we, we went on it for a while and then kind of tailed off. And the algorithm punishes you for um, starting to create content and then stopping. Um, so it's going to take a while to build back up. It's going to take a while to, to get on people's radar, uh, to have the, the notifications, um, come through, um, all that sort of thing. So any interaction you guys can give the channel is fantastic. If you can, uh, um, uh, you can like, you can share, you can subscribe, you can comment, um, engage in the live chat. That's awesome. Thank you to you, uh, who are here for that. Um, uh, hit the little notification bell so that, uh, I don't think it actually works. I never get notified by any of the, the, the notifications that I've signed up for on YouTube, but um, clicking it probably does something. So if you can do that. That's awesome. And then um, you can also be a channel member. Um, I, I think I had some perks that were that I, I put in there for that. I think it's like five bucks a month or something if you want to be a channel member. So you can support the show that way. And also, if you want to be a supporting listener of the show explicitly, then you can join. Uh, you can sign up on the, on the Subscribestar page, uh, subscribestar.com slash kingpilled. Um, if you sign up there, then you'll get added to our Discord. Uh, you can join the Discord in there. We had a really interesting uh, voice chat last night, and um, I think I'll probably be in there again tonight. Um, yeah, I think I think I'll be able to get in there later um, here tonight. So, um, if you want to sign up for that again, it's subscribe subscribe star dot com slash kingpilled, um, and then obviously you can also follow me on Twitter at real kingpilled. Um, so, thanks guys. Uh, this has been fun. Appreciate you guys showing up. Appreciate you guys watching and sharing and doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think I'll probably see you guys back here on Monday.